the cartels are adept at offering politicians, law enforcement personnel, business people, and others a very stark choice, plata o plomo, silver or lead. In other words, take a bribe and let us do our business, let us conduct our affairs without interference, or we'll, we will remove you forcibly. And increasingly, it is not, we will remove you, we will kill you. It is, we will torture and kill you and your family. That tends to be a fairly effective strategy. The sadism of some of the violence in Mexico over the past few years is absolutely astonishing. Uh, decapitation has become uh, a favorite tactic. Uh, grotesque tortures, uh, another tactic. I'll give you one example of just how the sadism has run amok there. Authorities um, discovered a body in the streets of one of the Mexican cities and nearby discovered a severed head. Now this unfortunately has become all too common. But one unusual feature of this was that the head had no face. They discovered the face a little while later, a couple blocks away, meticulously sewn onto a soccer ball. Now that requires a real degree of sadism. This is not something that is typical of uh, organized crime syndicates that are eliminating people, kind of nothing personal, it's just profit. Uh, this is the kind of sadism that you've come to expect from civil wars where there is an ethnic, religious, or racial basis. And that is now becoming a very common feature in Mexico. Uh, increasingly as well, the violence seems to be to generate sheer terrorism, not just to maximize the ability to conduct business. We also see the spread of violence, both north and south from Mexico. There's a lot of controversy about the extent of the spread of violence into the United States. There's been a, a fair amount of media hype about this. And more dispassionate analysts have pointed out, look, we don't have an epidemic of drug-related violence from Mexico spilling over the border into this country. And there's a fair amount of evidence to support that restrained view. Uh, for instance, a number of the southwestern US cities have violent crime rates that are lower than the national average. So one would look in vain for evidence that there's a massive spillover of violence from Mexico. However, I think some caution about that is warranted. The problem of spillover seems to be much more serious in the rural borderlands rather than in the southwestern cities. And we're seeing examples of that in uh, almost all of the southwestern states. There certainly is growing fear in Mexican-American communities along the border. Associated Press correspondent Paul Weber reported from Fort Hancock, Texas, with the following statement. 
When black SUVs trail school buses around here, no one dismisses it as routine traffic. And when three tough-looking Mexican men pace around the high school gym during a basketball game, no one assumes they're just fans. Mexican families fleeing the violence have moved here or sent their children, and authorities and residents say gangsters have followed them across the Rio Grande in a campaign of intimidation. And again, there is evidence to support that proposition. Certainly, there's growing fear among farmers and ranchers in the borderlands. A celebrated incident occurred a couple of years ago. A man named Robert Krenz, who owned a ranch in southern Arizona near the border. And uh, one day, authorities found him shot to death. Evidence at the scene indicated that he very likely intercepted a uh, scout for a Mexican drug shipment that was coming north, and he paid with that for his life, with his life. We have incidents in Texas in the, along the border as well. Farmlands in the Rio Grande Valley near the small town of La Jolla were burning stalks of sugarcane for harvest when four masked men on all-terrain vehicles approached them. The armed men surrounded the crew and ordered them to leave the area. Dale Murden, the farmer who employed the crew, said he had no doubt that the masked men were drug traffickers. They hide stuff in there, Murden said, referring to the dense fields of sugarcane, and try to intimidate anyone who gets too close. The incident on his ranch occurred just two weeks after a Hidalgo County employee was similarly threatened by masked men in order to stop clearing brush along a small river near the border. Later that year, men in a pickup truck fired shots at a foreman on a ranch adjacent to property owned by country music star George Strait. Texas ranchers and farmers, and now that I'm living in Texas, I can testify to that personally, contend that episodes similar to the ones Murden's workers experienced are growing more and more frequent. But whatever the truth about the extent of the spillover of violence north into the United States, the more immediate problem is the spread of violence into Central America. Both the Sinaloa cartel and the Zetas now are very active in that region. The drug gang turf fights that have so plagued Mexico are now being played out with increasing frequency and ferocity in Central America. And the gruesome trophies, especially severed heads, are now showing up with greater frequency as well. Honduras and Guatemala are especially at risk. According to Guatemala's federal prosecutor for narcotics offenses, the Zetas have gained control of four states and nearly half of Guatemala's territory. Kevin Casasamora, former vice president of Costa Rica and later a fellow at the Brookings Institution, put the figure at a slightly more modest 40%, but that included a large northern region known as the Petén. The Zetas have roadblocks there, he noted. You can only enter the Petén if the Zetas allow you to. Now this raises the prospect of one or more of the Central American states uh, becoming a narco state or a failed state. When a government cannot control major portions of its territory, that is a sign of trouble. Highlighting the financial resources of the cartels, Guatemala's former president, Alvaro Colom, 
noted that authorities had seized some $12 billion in property, drugs, and cash during his four years in office. The comparable figure for the previous eight years was $1.1 billion. $12 billion, he emphasized, was equal to almost two years of the Guatemalan government's budget. These are some serious financial resources available to the drug traffickers. And uh, Washington is increasingly worried about these developments, although again, that has not received a lot of attention in this country. But the US military has assigned some personnel to assist security forces in the Central American countries to battle the cartels. And the US Marines have actually been involved in a couple of shootouts earlier this year uh, with a great deal of controversy among the populations of uh, uh, Central American countries. Those two incidents took place in Honduras. And let's put it this way, Honduras uh, has a rather delicate relationship between the public and the security forces, given the history of how the security forces have operated there. Central America is back on Washington's security radar in a major way for the first time since the end of the Cold War. And that is a very, very important development. Now, is there a solution to all this? Well, one strategy, and I think this is the one that is going to be pursued by Mexico's new president, Enrique Peña Nieto, is to try to restore the status quo ante, the situation that existed through, uh, at least up through the 1990s. And that was essentially uh, at a time when the Institutional Revolutionary Party governed everything. It was Mexico's, for practical purposes, a one-party state. And the Mexican government played a bit of a game here. Uh, they kept getting pressure from Washington to crack down on the drug trade, uh, to wage a true war on drugs. But the Mexican government basically had an implicit arrangement with the cartels. That is, you keep the violence within bounds, and we will not interfere excessively with your trade. The product will go north into the United States without much interference. Yes, we get pressure from Washington, and we have to respond from time to time. We have to make a big show that we have made a, a raid and uh, taken a lot of drug, drugs into, uh, into and confiscated. But don't worry about it. Most of the time, we're not going to really interfere with your trade. That situation broke down once the National Action Party won the presidency and the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI, no longer controlled everything. And under President Calderon, the second National Action Party president, uh, things really have gotten out of control. I don't think Peña Nieto or anyone else is going to put this back into the bottle. You can't restore the status quo ante. And the reason is that the Institutional Revolutionary Party and Peña Nieto is the leader of that party, no longer controls everything from top to bottom in Mexico. So the drug cartels, even if somehow they worked out an arrangement with the pre-leadership, that doesn't guarantee anything. 
National Action Party officials or officials of the Party of the Democratic Revolution, the more left-wing party, don't necessarily have to go along with that. Mexico is a much more complicated place politically than it was in previous decades. And that makes the nice, simple, de facto bargain between the government and the cartels very, very difficult to restore. Moreover, even if the status quo ante could be restored, I think that's only a Band-Aid solution. The only lasting solution is to defund the cartels as much as possible. And that requires a recognition that the strategy of prohibition, both in Mexico and in the United States, is inherently a failure. Former President Vicente Fox, who wrote the foreword to my book, got it right, uh, unfortunately, after he left office. <laughs> he broke sharply with his previous positions, as well as the position taken by the Calderon administration. We should consider legalizing the production, distribution, and sale of drugs, he wrote very bluntly. And then he added a succinct, damning indictment of both Calderon's drug policies and those of his own administrations, his administration. Radical prohibition strategies, he said, have never worked. And that is the bottom line. He stressed that this wasn't implying that drugs were good or that they didn't harm those who consumed them. Although he did note correctly that countries that adopted serious drug law reforms, like Portugal, had not experienced an explosion of either drug use or crime rates. And that, I think, is a definitive response to those who always argue, if you end the war on drugs, you know, everyone is lined up at the starting gate just wanting to use <laughs> drugs. And so you're going to get this massive explosion of use. The evidence indicates that simply is not the case. Fox's reason for abandoning prohibition was based on a realistic assessment of economic realities. Legalization, he said, is a way to strike at and break the economic structure that allows gangs to generate huge profits in their trade, which in turn feeds corruption and increases their areas of power. And he's not the only one who's coming to that conclusion. A, a number of other significant uh, foreign leaders, past and present, have reached that same conclusion. Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs four decades ago. It hasn't worked, and it has caused enormous, ugly side effects. Nearly 90% of the retail price of illegal drugs is due to the black market premium. And abandoning prohibition would strike a major blow at the revenues of the drug cartels. Indeed, just legalizing marijuana would be a significant blow. The best estimates are that 30 to 35% of the Mexican cartel revenues come from marijuana. We certainly see changing attitudes, not only internationally, but we're seeing a change here in the United States. Um, recently, former US Representative Tom Tancredo of Colorado, as well as the GOP nominee for the US Senate in Washington state, endorsed the ballot initiatives in those states, effectively legalizing marijuana for private use. A Gallup survey, very detailed one late last year, 
found that 50% of respondents were in favor of legalization, only 46% opposed. A majority of both Democrats and independents were in favor, and a majority of those under the age of 45. The only groups that were solidly opposed to legalization were people over the age of 45 and especially elderly Republicans, those over the age of 65. Now, one doesn't have to be an expert on mortality tables to figure out that for advocates of legalization, the demographic trends are quite favorable. <laughs> and of course, we've seen the recent poll that Chris just cited from um, the uh, Rasmussen, Rasmussen yeah. that again, the tide is turning against the drug war, and understandably so, given its terrible effects both here in the United States and abroad. The result of the referenda in Colorado and Washington state further support that, where voters in both states approved measures to legalize and regulate marijuana. If we want to curb the power of the Mexican cartels and the threat they pose to both Mexico and Mexico's neighbors, including the US, we need to repudiate prohibition. That strategy did not work against alcohol in the 1920s, and it's not working today. Now, one has to convince the Drug Enforcement Administration that prohibition in the 1920s didn't work. They actually <laughs> have something on their website that indicates they think prohibition worked quite well because it did cause a decline in per capita consumption of alcohol. Well, I mentioned in my book, that's, that's a little like looking at the balance sheet of a corporation and looking only at assets or income and not at liabilities or expenses. And by that measure, organizations like uh, Enron and WorldCom and uh, Bear Stearns were fabulously run corporations. But if you look at the true balance, the not just any benefits of prohibition, but the costs, financial and societal, of prohibition, I don't think anyone in his or her right mind could suggest that prohibition in the 1920s worked. The reality is then and now, prohibition only empowers gangsters. There is a tremendous demand in the United States for illegal substances, particularly marijuana. And our choice is not between suppressing that trade effectively or tolerating it. It is a choice between having that trade in the hands of legitimate businesses or having it dominated by extremely violent, ruthless criminal elements. The bottom line, as we see in Mexico today and saw in the US in the 1920s, prohibition only empowers gangsters. And after trying that strategy for several decades, it's time for a policy change. That change should be very high on now re-elected President Obama's agenda. Thank you.
Thank you, Ted. Um, I don't often do this, but I'm going to exercise my moderator's privilege and ask the first question. Um, you alluded to the fact that in some of the smaller Central American countries, the influx of the, uh, the drug cartels like the Zetas um, pose a, a real threat to, to those governments because they are fairly small. Obviously, Mexico is much larger. So is Mexico in danger of becoming a failed state? Is it, can, can, just to, to, to narrow the definition, uh, can the government claim uh, sovereignty over its territory, or are there, uh, is there territory today, or is there danger that territory within Mexico is not under government control? I address that at some length in the book. Um, I argue that the worry about Mexico becoming a failed state is exaggerated. What has happened is that the risk of Mexico becoming a failed state has gone from being infinitesimally small, which it was five, ten years ago, to being a slight risk. I'm not ruling it out because it is a worrisome development that there are some portions of Mexico's territory where the government's uh, authority is precarious. And that's, that's a very troubling development. But Mexico has some powerful institutions that stand in the way of the cartels making that a failed state or even effectively a narco state. Uh, not only the Catholic Church is an organized institution, but also the legitimate business community. I mean, Mexico is a country with uh, a GDP of about $1.2 trillion. This is not insignificant. There are a lot of prosperous, powerful businesses in Mexico that are not just about to abandon the field to the cartels. Uh, you have very well-organized, influential um, political parties. Uh, you have, at least in some areas, a fairly uh, strong civil society. What is so striking is that all of these features, um, even to some extent, including the Catholic Church, are much, much weaker in the Central American countries. The cartels, given their resources, I think, have a much greater ability to convert one or more of the Central American countries into a failed state or, I think, more likely a, nar a narco state than they have that ability in Mexico. Okay. All right. Uh, well, uh, we do have time for uh, Q&A and uh, a few ground rules here. Uh, uh, first of all, please wait for the microphone so that the people who are watching online uh, can hear your question. Uh, uh, please announce your name and affiliation if you have one. Uh, and, and I like to say the Jeopardy rule here applies at the Cato Institute, which is phrase your uh, question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. Uh, who's first? I, I have in the back, I, and I, I apologize in advance for those of you in the back of the room, if I don't see you immediately, but I, way in the back, uh, Jonathan, uh, there, there's a hand there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work my way backwards and, and to the front. We have, a good, we have a good crowd here. I don't want to neglect the folks in the back. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Carpenter, my name is Kami But How would you defend your book or your argument that U.S. government is using taxpayer dollars to, to uh, 
you know, make this a very, very big problem uh, about drugs in the United States. And um, asking this question in the context of Afghanistan and Pakistan, I write for the Pakistani spectator, and if you go in that part of the world, people tell, oh, it's American who make real money. Uh, in drugs, not Pakistani or Afghanistani. And if I live in ghetto part of Washington, D.C., where you can see a lot of kids smoking pot and having fun, and when I talk with them, they tell, oh, it's really white men who make real money. We are just poor guys who are, uh, you know, prison are filled with us. So, I mean, to me, that is not true because U.S. government has brought some drug lord from Afghanistan and they are serving time in the United States. So, U.S. is not really involved with those kind of propaganda that Afghani or Pakistani are doing, nor do these, you know, African-American kids who say, oh, real money is made by white so, guys. So, who's making the real money here? Are, are, there, are there Mexicans actually making money here or is this all just uh, an American plot? Well, the uh, high level leaders in the Mexican drug cartels most definitely are making money and a lot of it. The mules, those who take small shipments across the border, are not making a whole lot of money. But again, you have to place that in context. Uh, many of these people come from the poorest sectors of Mexican society. And for them, as dangerous as this work might be, um, as modest as the money might be to them, it is still better than the kind of money they're capable of making outside of the drug trade. That's one of the great tragedies, and I think one of the cures, if you will, for, for the drug trafficking problem would be a much more vigorous growth rate in the Mexican economy so that there are other uh, far more attractive opportunities. That being said, the black market premium makes the drug trade I'm going to put this delicately, highly competitive <laughs> in almost any environment. And uh, right now, uh, the drug trafficking organizations can offer employment opportunities that very few legitimate Mas Mexican businesses can offer. Uh, okay, in the, in the back, uh, back rail there, straight back. Hi, I'm Steve. I study. Can you IR. stand up, uh, please? Yeah, uh, thanks. I might get a nosebleed, Mr. Preble. <laughs> um, I'm Steve. I study IR in the city and uh, work in the news business also. Thanks a lot, Mr. Preble, for uh, today's forum. We're a long way from uh, from our usual discussion of the fiscal cliff. It's sort of a different <laughs> one today. Um, Mr. Carpenter, there are a couple of questions I had. The first is um, if you could sort of amplify the corrosive effects. You talk about the, the adverse effects on the southern part of the border. If you could amplify your uh, sentiments about the corrosive effects on the northern side of the border uh, to U.S. institutions uh, regarding the, the, the cartel's uh, influence. Um, there's always the, the issue of uh, border agents who are susceptible, susceptible to uh, corruption. There's a recent case of um, uh, Marco Antonio Delgado, uh, who's under indictment now for a few counts of um, helping to launder nearly half a billion dollars uh, for the, uh, the cartels. The other question is, um, could you look at the role of the U.S. military uh, in interdiction uh, on this side of the border um, and, uh, and what success they may have had, especially as regards the areas of Chicago, L.A., here on the East Coast that are known to be sort of hubs for uh, shipment? Thanks Thank again. You. Thank you. Okay, to answer the second question first, the involvement of the U.S. military domestically in terms of intercepting uh, drug shipments and battling uh, drug gangs remains relatively limited, and I would like to see that even more so 
the Posse Comitatus Act, which supposedly bans the military from domestic law enforcement, has been eroded. And that's one of the many, many adverse domestic effects of the war on drugs, just as the Fourth Amendment may it rest in peace, which has been a major casualty of the, of the drug war. Along the border, you have the Border Patrol, of course, and you've had the U.S. military providing a lot of intelligence, both to the Border Patrol and, I might add, to the Mexican security forces on the, uh, on the other side of the border. The, uh, I mean, the corrosive effects of the drug war uh, are almost too numerous to, to even get into in a, a fairly short policy forum. It has had a horrible effect especially on minority communities in the United States. Uh, there's been data that uh, about 30% of uh, African-American males between the ages of 16 and 35 are either in jail, um, on parole, or on probation. And that's about as depressing a statistic as I think anyone could come up with. But what's generally not known is that if you eliminated nonviolent drug offenses from that total, it drops dramatically by more than half. And so that is how uh, just one terribly corrosive effect. And let's consider the current president of the United States, who admitted that in his youth, he uh, sampled a number of illegal substances. And unlike one previous president, he did inhale. <laughs> now, imagine the different course Barack Obama's life might have taken if he had been one of the unlucky drug users who ran afoul of the law. Would he have been able to go on to Harvard Law School? I don't think so. Would he have been able to be elected state senator and U.S. senator from the state of Illinois? Probably not. And he certainly would not have been elected president of the United States. Now, some people might say that would have been a good thing, but I'll leave that to a later discussion. <laughs> um, the one thing that does stand out, though, is that President Obama, I think, much to his shame, is not averse to having other people who did exactly the same thing he did in his youth suffer criminal penalties for doing that. And I think that is one of the most hypocritical elements I've seen in, in any recent office holder, and believe me, that's a high bar to clear. So I think that's just one of many corrosive effects. We could go into the amount of money being spent. Chris was absolutely right, by the way. The actual figure is well over $40 billion a year being spent on the war on drugs. and. It has affected our politics. One of the biggest contributors to the side opposing the marijuana legalization initiative in California a couple of years ago was the union representing prison guards. That's how, in a very subtle but ugly way, the war on drugs has corrupted our system. Uh, there was a hand in the, in the back rail right there on the, uh, on the rail there. Hey, Ted. Ashley Marsh from the Cato Institute. I'm wondering if you're getting any sense from the governments involved 
that there's any reluctance to consider decriminalization or legalization because of fear of what the cartels might do? Hmm. No, I think uh, the, the trend is toward favoring legalization and beginning to stand up to the United States. Uh, in fact, several Latin American governments cited the uh, recent passage of measures in Colorado and the state of Washington legalizing marijuana as throwing into doubt their whole strategy of trying to suppress the trade. Now, I think they're using that as a very convenient excuse to reopen this issue in a way of, to challenge the United States policy without uh, a frontal assault on that policy. They're saying, hey, you're legalizing this product that you're asking us to engage in all sorts of sacrifices to suppress. That makes no sense. But if you look at the trend throughout the hemisphere in terms of sentiment, both among the political elite and generally, I think it is toward favoring legalization, not going in the other direction. Uh, in terms of just uh, to amplify what Ashley said, so Ted, just as prison guards have a vested interest in keeping the current law as it is, which uh, provides them with, uh, with employment, if, and I, I accept your, your premise, that 90% of the profits from drugs comes from the fact that it's, that it's criminalized, uh, wouldn't there be resistance from the cartels to a broad uh, decriminalization, uh, move towards decriminalization, decriminalization or, is, or is their attitude that is just so unlikely that they're, they're not investing their resources there right now? No, I, you raise a very good point, and, uh, Historians have noted that with alcohol prohibition in the 1920s, you had a curious coalition in favor of maintaining the prohibition laws, a coalition that was described by historians as the bootlegger Baptist coalition, right. the people who opposed alcohol for moral and religious reasons, and the bootleggers who were making a tremendous income off of alcohol being illegal. Um, you would certainly have that element uh, with the drug cartels in Mexico, drug legalization would, if not threaten their very existence, at least threaten their profit margins and greatly complicate their lives. Uh, okay, moving uh, a little bit closer, uh, right, right there uh, in the right there, uh, no, back, back farther, Jonathan, right, right there, yep. Hi, Joel Jager, American University. I was wondering if you thought that the cartel's expansion into other areas such as oil theft or human trafficking could change the calculus um, of defunding them. It does change it slightly, and I, I do address that in the book. Um, you know, just as eliminating alcohol prohibition in the United States did not completely eliminate organized crime, uh, legalizing drugs in the U.S., and ultimately, I think that would spread to other consumer nations, would not completely eliminate the drug cartels, but it would severely weaken them. They can replace part of that revenue flow, and they're already diversifying, as, as you've noted, into kidnapping, into extortion, into theft of oil uh, supplies, and, and I might add some other products as well. But you cannot make up the vast sums that come from the illegal drug trade. For one thing, those other crimes have real victims and tend to generate tremendous public opposition. 
when you directly steal from people or you try to engage in extortion, uh, people did get their hackles up. Uh, with the drug trade, especially given the fact the majority of consumers are outside of Mexico, vast majority, uh, the attitude tends to be much more casual. Let the trade go on. Who cares? If the Yankees want to buy this stuff, let them buy it. And there's much greater resistance to battling the cartels and suffering the inconvenience and casualties in carrying out a task basically for Washington. Um, I, I saw a hand over here, and then uh, we'll move our, closer. They're, uh, they're in the purple shirt right there. Purple. Hi, Juan Sebastián Sarmiento, American University. Um, I was wondering, after legalization, there's a process of regulation and control of drugs, of course, just like tobacco and alcohol. So my question is, are you talking about all drugs or which type of drugs should be uh, allowed? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, good question. Uh, I would eliminate prohibition for all drugs, all of it. However, however, uh, I think very reasonable people can disagree, can debate about how to regulate, how to deal with various drugs in a legalized environment. For example, marijuana, I think, is a fairly easy one. Uh, you treat that one pretty much like you do alcohol and tobacco. And in fact, I would, I would as an aside, liberalize the law on uh, alcohol to reduce the minimum age to no more than 18. We have the dumbest law on the planet in terms of expecting that to apply to legal adults uh, age 19 and 20. Um, the other drugs, that is a very tough call. And you're getting somewhat outside my area of expertise. Do we treat that, those products, meth, cocaine, heroin, other drugs, the way we would alcohol and tobacco, I think there would justifiably be a lot of resistance to that. Do we treat it the same way we do prescription drugs? That's probably a better option. That's the kind of thing that really needs to be debated at length. What kind of legal and regulatory environment do you want for those kinds of drugs? And I don't have a, a firm answer to that. That's the kind of discussion we should have, though, rather than the Nancy Reagan approach of just say no. That clearly has not worked. Uh, down here? Yes, you, sir. Uh, Howard Woldridge, co-founder of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, retired police detective. It was my experience that the war on drugs, drug prohibition, has been the most destructive, dysfunctional, and immoral policy since slavery and Jim Crow. My question is, for the leaders here in Washington, D.C., from your experience or knowledge, uh, when, we, when 15 kids were killed at a birthday party a couple of years ago in Ciudad Juarez, uh, everybody from uh, Secretary of State Clinton, et cetera, saying, oh, this is terrible, this is horrible, uh, we really regret the loss of life, et cetera. However, what I see is that uh, as long as it's 60,000 Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans dying, for our drug prohibition, we really don't care enough to change policy. Do you think that the suffering and death and the misery caused by our prohibition is ever going to move alone uh, the, the folks here in Washington? Yeah, one could easily get depressed about this because the loss of life, even in US communities, 
particularly in minority communities, hasn't seemed to move the policy needle all that much. Um, but I'm more optimistic. Again, I think you're getting a change, a, a tidal change in public attitudes about drug policy. And let's remember, elected office holders especially are lagging indicators when it comes to policy change. They tend to follow public sentiment. They want to see where the crowd is going, be absolutely sure about that before they get in front of the parade. And I think we're beginning to see uh, some, some political types begin to move in that direction, but very, very cautiously. Uh, we're likely to see more of that in the future, and it's not going to be because of the suffering in communities in the United States, much less those overseas. It's going to be more rational calculations. Has this become an issue that could lose me an election rather than win me an election? Um, are there alternative sources of revenue out there that can help close these yawning budget deficits, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level? I mean, that was one of the factors that ended alcohol prohibition. It's not accidental that the repeal of prohibition took place in 1933, right, in the depths of the Great Depression when um, various units of government were, shall we say, hurting financially. <laughs> uh, I have a question down here. Uh, and, and then I'll get, uh, I'll get those along the wall, but uh, Alan, and then. Uh... Thank you. Hi, I'm Alan Tonelson with the U.S. Business and Industry Council. Ted, I was hoping you could just give us a little context um, on the major, most recent trends in drug use in, in this country. Is it going up? Is it going down? Is the street price going up? Is it going down? Is it more available, less available? What's happening with you know, kids? Uh, and, and, you know, especially, I guess, marijuana use, up or down, or, you know, what's yeah. going on here? Yeah, a very good question, and uh, I guess uh, one sentence answer to be on that is that it's very, drug use and pricing, very much like the stock market, it varies. <laughs> it goes up and down. But we can see some longer-term trends. Um, for instance, uh, marijuana use uh, went up throughout the 1970s with the drug crackdown in the 1980s and changing attitudes about it, uh, it went down modestly, started back up modestly in the 1990s, and right now is very close to being back to the peak in the late 1970s. Heroin, on the other hand, has been just tremendously steady. Not a lot of users, but it just the rates just keep uh, bouncing around uh, along the bottom. Cocaine is the one where you have seen a sustained decline. You get uh, blips up and so on, but cocaine use is significantly less today than it was uh, 25 or 30 years ago. I would attribute that, though, less to effective law enforcement, which I don't, I don't see that being any more effective now than it was a quarter century ago, but uh, education and changes in public attitude that people realize you know, that's a, kind of a nasty drug with unpleasant uh, addictive effects. It is not just the cool use drug kind of hardcore marijuana, which is, I think, what the prevailing attitude began to be in the late 1970s and early, early 1980s. Um, and again, in a regime of legalization, educational efforts can and should continue to, uh, especially for, for kids, let them know, hey, this stuff is... Uh, has some very unpleasant 
uh, consequences in many cases. Again, marijuana largely aside, one of the worst aspects of the U.S. government's education slash propaganda campaign is that the overwhelming majority of resources and attention for commercials and other things out there on the drug issue was devoted to marijuana use, which again, anybody I think acknowledges is easily the least harmful of all of the illegal drugs. Uh, there was a hand, uh, two on the, on the wall there. Uh, you, you, sir, in the back, yep. Uh, during the uh, 1990s, Colombia was seen as the uh, fledging narco-democracy with uh, violence by cartel members not only directed against each other, but against the uh, uh, Colombian high government officials. Uh, I think we can assume that the Colombian drug, drug cartels uh, continue to be in business, yet we no longer see Colombia as this uh, problematic narco-democracy. And I was wondering if there's any lessons that could be learned from the uh, Colombian experience, particularly uh, the Colombian and the United States uh, working together, any lessons from that that Mexico can draw uh, in dealing with their own problems? The Colombian government, I think, scored a limited success, uh, ironically, before the adoption of Plan Colombia, the multi-billion dollar program adopted in 2000 with U.S. support. The major successes occurred in the 1990s with the smashing of the Medellin and Cali cartels, the two overwhelmingly dominant cartels at that time. However, the situation in Colombia and Mexico are different on, on uh, multiple levels. Uh, for one thing, the Mexican drug trade has always been more decentralized. You never really had two totally dominant cartels, and in Mexico today, you most definitely don't. The Zetas and the Sinaloa are the leading cartels, but there are plenty of other significant actors. So that strategy is, is problematic at best. Secondly, um, while the threat posed by the Medellin and Cali cartels uh, certainly diminished once those organizations were smashed. Um, I think a bigger factor was the decline of the left-wing insurgencies, uh, epitomized by the revolutionary, the FARC and the ELN, uh, the two principal left-wing insurgent groups. Uh, the drug trade coming out of Colombia, again, hasn't changed all that much. And that's true of the entire Andean region. The composition of that trade, which country is dominant at any one point in time, that tends to change. But the amount of drugs coming out of Colombia and the rest of the Andean region remains very, very level. That, that is not changing. And the Colombian government doesn't seem overly interested in trying to stop that trade as long as the level of violence stays down. Uh uh, here on the wall, and then I'll get over to the center here. And oh, there's questions on this. Okay, very good. I'm not. I'm. I'm trying to to see the whole crowd here. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, Pat's Pan, just myself. I was wondering if you could give a little bit of a definition. You know, we always hear the term narco state, and and my background is in national relations, and I'm sort of thinking in dealings with us, why would a narco state be any different from, say, the dictatorships of the 50s or 60s in Central America? Could, could, you, get a, could you just sort of flesh out, when, you, when they throw this around all the time, that, oh, they're going to devolve into a narco state. Right. What well, what's that? the difference between that and an authoritarian dic dic dictatorship that we used to deal with? Right. 
Uh, not a tremendous amount uh, in terms of uh, the degree of ruthlessness, uh, uh, bloodthirst. I guess uh, one would say a narco state would probably be less responsive to the U.S. government, particularly if Washington insisted on interfering with its commerce. Um, you could say the criminal elements would be at least marginally worse than the people who ran the authoritarian regimes in, in previous uh, decades. Uh, but I think probably the main difference would be um, the economic aspect and the fact that these governments would be uh, decidedly unresponsive to the United States. And that is why Washington worries a lot about the development of such, such regimes. Uh, I saw a hand on this side. Yes, sir, right there. Uh, my name is Andres Barreto. And you have mentioned several times the vast amounts of... Is that on? Yes, yeah, hold it up, hold it up it. close, sir, so we can hear Not you. hearing. Very good. Oh, sir. The vast amounts of money involved in the drug trafficking. Who are the main beneficiaries of all that money, and who is moving it around? That's a, that's a very complex question. Um, as I suggested before, the highest levels of the drug cartels are the ones who profit the most, but... Uh, for instance, one has to launder those profits. Uh, so banking industries, both in this country and in drug source countries, profit a great deal. Uh, the people who, when given the choice of silver or lead, opt quite readily for silver, uh, make a considerable amount of money off of the trade. I have one example in the book where some high-level officials in the Mexican Attorney General's office we're taking bribes of up to $400,000 a month for looking the other way and perhaps more affirmatively assisting the drug cartels in conducting their trade, getting their product to the United States. That is a lot of money. But when you're talking about even the Mexican phase of this trade being the low end estimate around $35 billion, there's a lot of money to be made in that. And, uh, hundreds if not thousands of people who become very, very prosperous doing it. Not the lowest level of the, of the trade, certainly not. But those further up the chain do very well indeed. Uh, right here, and then I'll uh, get to the middle again. Yes, sir. Yeah, my name is Larry Cherino for myself. Um, Speak up a little bit, sir. Sure. Thank you. If you, uh, you could address the issue of the uh, taking this this discussion from the think tank to the pulpit here, as you alluded to earlier with the, uh, the earlier prohibition experience. And in our society today, I, we just went through an election. You can really see this, the breadth of the, of the uh, red states and where it occurs geographically and historically correlating with, with these kinds of discussions. So your point of view on uh, how we do that or if it's a, even a good idea, how do we move the society uh, when we change the, the position of the discussion? Yeah, that, uh, that certainly is a, a good question. And um, the, the more conservative portions of American society are probably going to be more resistant to drug legalization than the more moderate and liberal components. Although I would point out there are some leading conservatives past and present who were some of the most outspoken advocates of ending the war on drugs including William F. Buckley, Jr., the late uh, 
publisher and editor of uh, National Review, former Secretary of State George Shultz, who has been quite outspoken, has signed a number of um, documents um, advocating the end to, to prohibition. However, uh, for instance, uh, while Colorado and Washington were approving full-fledged legalization of marijuana for recreational use, Arkansas voters voted against uh, using marijuana even uh, for medical reasons. So there, there, there certainly is that um, sectional geographical difference. Um, I think probably the best strategy for doing this would be, again, to copy the repeal of alcohol prohibition and turn it back over to the states. And even within the states, you're likely to have local option. I think that's the most practical political way to do it. If you try to change this as a national policy, I think you're going to have a lot of resistance to it among more conservative uh, groups in the United States, socially conservative groups. Uh, right here. My name is Stephen Shore. Um, the day before the scheduled monetary conference, I can't help but ask, what would be the any estimate of how the value of the peso and of the Mexican balance of payments might be affected by legalization in much of the or all of the United States? You, you are really outside my area of expertise. I have a lot of trouble even anticipating the exchange rate for the dollar and euro given developments in the world. I wouldn't even venture a guess on that. I don't know. Uh, there, right there, ma'am? Yes, ma'am. Kimberly Dvorak, The Examiner. Um, my question is about the money laundering, and we have no shortfall of that in our U.S. banking system. You know, we're kind of facing a fiscal cliff of our own here. Perhaps instead of uh, setting fines that are all-time all too low for the amount of money that they are actually, it's a slap on the wrist. Why, why stop laundering the money here when they get a slap on the wrist? They launder $10 billion, they get... 100 million fine that's a no-brainer for money you know have you addressed that at all that issue i don't really discuss that very much in the in the book itself uh, money laundering is a tremendously complex topic in and of itself and when you're dealing with mexico uh it gets more complex than with a lot of other uh drug source countries as one expert on this issue pointed out, he said, you know, money laundering uh, with regard to the Mexican cartels can take various forms, laundering uh, with financial institutions in the U.S., laundering with financial institutions in Mexico, and if you want to go low-tech, uh, throwing a lot of dollars in the trunk of your car and driving across the border going south. So uh, this, is, this is a task that I think is utterly hopeless, even if you raise the penalties for money laundering, the, the potential profit is just too, too uh, attractive. Can you, uh, yeah, uh, microphone, sure, quick follow-up, quick. But from the U.S. perspective, it, wouldn't it behoove us to actually lead on this matter? So, you, so what you're calling, so you're asking, would, it, would uh, stiffer penalties for this uh, result in less, less banks, money laundering? Yeah, yes. we control our own banks. Right. Well. It might act as somewhat of a deterrent, but again, the enormous profit available for various aspects of the drug trade, you're going to find 
institutions and individuals willing to accept that risk as well. Of course, so I don't think it would have for, that much of an effect. And stiffer penalties for drug users and drug dealers also has, does not appear to have had much effect on uh, drug use or drug dealing. Yeah, yeah, China and other countries have even gone to capital punishment. And right. you know, they, a number of these countries, including Iran, by the way, right. uh, have acknowledged that uh, drug use has become more and more of an issue, even in those societies. Uh, I saw, uh, okay, a couple here in the front. Uh, time for about uh, three more questions, quickly. Yes, sir. Uh, hi, I'm Colby Schuler. I'm a student at American University. Uh, you mentioned earlier that in a lot of states, because Washington's policy is kind of lagging a lot of Central American and Latin American states when it comes to prohibition, um, and a lot of leaders within those states are kind of leaning more towards legalization than in the United States. Do you think that if this continues to happen, where Washington's kind of lagging behind Latin America when it comes to moving towards legalization, that this will have broader impact, um, especially with like delegitimization de of other U.S. policies within Latin America? That's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know how much of a transference there would be. Uh, it certainly does appear that Latin American leaders are, are becoming much more resistant to U.S. policy on this issue. And that's probably going to have some carryover effect that they're, they're going to be more resistant to Washington's policy preferences on other issues, especially if they see that those policies clearly don't serve their national interests. And I would expect to see that. You know, for a long time, uh, some advocates of uh, ending the drug war were frustrated with Latin American leaders uh, one even commented at one point, uh, these people need a spine transplant. Mm -hmm. But I was more understanding about it. It's hard to stand up to Washington, given its enormous uh, ability to cause problems for you if, if you do stand up that way. But I think the, the resistance level is getting greater and greater, certainly on this issue. I'm beginning to see it on some other issues as well. Uh, and right, uh, right there. <clears throat> Uh, my name is Gabriel Marcus. I'm also a student at American University. In regards to decriminalization versus legalization, what do you think those effects, how do those effects differ on cartels? And also, what is the feasibility of, of having uh, drugs uh, decriminalized versus actually legalized and regulated in the United States? Yeah, the, I think the main difference between decriminalization and legalization uh, has been more the attitude that legalization somehow includes a government approval of the conduct. I, I think it's uh, a rather specious distinction. If you don't think the government has a right to tell you what you may do with your own body, uh, then you ought to make the conduct legal, not just, oh, bad girl, bad boy. You know, but we're not going to punish you very much for it. I think that's kind of disgusting paternalism. Well said. Uh, and last question right there in the middle, uh, sir. Thanks. Uh, Will Satron, American University. Um, you were talking about the tidal wave of change in American public opinion. And uh, I think uh, the initiatives in Washington and Colorado are very good examples of that. Um, what kind of impact, what reaction do you think we're going to see from the American administration uh, riding on the heels of these initiatives? And if it does have an impact on American policy and the war on drugs, if it ends, do you think there's going to be a swift change in Mexico as well? 
Well, first of all, the Mexican government, even under President Calderon, adopted some harm reduction measures that Mexican authorities are no longer going after people for possession of small quantities of drugs um, as, as a criminal matter. Now, for a long time, there was effective de facto decriminalization because all you had to do is pay a bribe to the local police officer who arrested you, and you, uh, you got away free. But this makes it a bit more official. Um, here in the United States, I'm watching this very, very carefully, particularly the reaction of the Obama administration. And the administration in its first term was absolutely schizoid on the, uh, the, on the issue of drug policy. It started out making some pretty good noises about it. Um, it ordered the, uh, the Justice Department not to crack down, for instance, on medical marijuana clinics in states where medical marijuana was legal. And then in late 2010, early 2011, you got a 180-degree reversal of policy where uh, President Obama tapped his inner George W. Bush and really began to crack down on the, these medical marijuana clinics. I'm really waiting to see what happens now in the states where recreational use of marijuana is legal. Uh, this could turn into a nasty federalism issue because if the federal government just runs roughshod over the states that have legalized marijuana, I think this is going to lead to a very ugly controversy. And yet the president's gonna be getting pressure from not only advocates of drug prohibition in his own party and just generally, but the law enforcement bureaucracy to enforce federal law. Marijuana remains strictly illegal under federal law. If the president is smart about this, he is going to order the law enforcement agencies to keep their bloody hands off of the states where marijuana is now legal. We will see just how uh, both ethical and shrewd the president is in dealing with this matter. Well said. All right. Uh, thank you again, Ted. Um, a few quick uh, housekeeping announcements. Uh, uh, we hope you will join us on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center for lunch. Ted will be there to sign <coughs> books. Uh, the restrooms are on the second floor. Uh, you, can, you can get to the conference center by taking the spiral staircase <coughs> up, and our uh, conference staff will also help to direct you. So thank you all very much. Uh, join me in thanking you.